So Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his finger into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away, hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish and having blessed them he said to those that should also be set before them and they ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full and there were about four thousand people and he sent them away and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they'd forgotten to bring bread and they had only one left, loaf left with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought him to a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. 
And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Father, we ask that this morning you would give us your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and hearts that we might understand what this passage says about your son Jesus. And having understood this passage, we pray that you would change our hearts to love him and to become like him. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, let me introduce you to Steve. Steve was a mechanic and a lorry driver by trade until he retired a few years ago. By Steve's own admission, he was not a good man. There were many things that he had said and done throughout his life which he deeply regretted. He'd built up for himself a reputation, a reputation of violence and of immorality. He was a hard-hearted man. And as a practical man, as he thought of himself, he'd never thought about spiritual things, let alone the person of Jesus Christ. He saw all of that as irrelevant. But then at 60 years old, uh, one Saturday morning, he was out cleaning his car on his driveway, and a friend of mine was delivering leaflets to the neighbourhood, inviting people to come um, to church. And Steve took a leaflet from my friend and got in a conversation with him about what he was doing. And Steve came to church. He heard the good news of Jesus. He realized his need for salvation, repented, believed, and was saved. That's Steve. Now, Andrew is a different character. Andrew is a partner in a top London accountancy firm. He's highly capable, highly respected in the business world, and he lives a respectable life. He's really in the other end of society to Steve. His reputation could not have been higher. But like Steve, he too had lived in the world and had never taken seriously that there may be something more to this life than what he could see in front of him. He too was a hard-hearted man when it came to the gospel. But then in his 40s, someone asked him to consider again the person of Jesus. Andrew was invited to a Bible study with this person and to to look at the Bible with him and slowly but surely, over a period of time, he began to understand for himself the astonishing person of Jesus Christ as he was revealed in the gospels. He too realized his need for salvation. He too repented, believed, and was saved. Two two very different men from two very different backgrounds with very different personalities and characters who for many years, for decades even, had no interest in Jesus. 
Yet now they rejoice together in the salvation they have as brothers in Christ. How did that happen? How did they get to that point? How did they move from hard-heartedness, from dullness, from being uninterested to, to then very uh, amazingly a vibrant faith in Jesus? How did that happen to them? And perhaps you're here this morning as a Christian. How did that happen to you? How does that happen to those people that we're trying to reach with the good news of Jesus that maybe we started reading uh, the Bible with? How is it How is it going to happen for them when they seem so uninterested? Well, keep those questions in mind. Keep those kinds of people in mind because the answers to that are found in Mark chapter 7 and Mark chapter 8. If you just have a look at the back of the service sheets, if you have one, it will give you a bit of a road map for where we're going this morning. We're going to look at the passage in a slightly different way um, to, the, to the way we normally do. And so you'll see there that the plan uh, is, is to, first of all, to go through the story and look at the action. So we're going to look at these three amazing events, these miracles, uh, two healing miracles and one feeding miracle. And we'll unpack that as to what it means about the identity of Jesus. Then we're going to come back and we're going to think about two reactions, or more properly, two conversations um, that we see in this passage right in the middle, that of the Pharisees and the disciples. And in looking at them, we're going to see something of our own spiritual condition. And then finally, we're going to consider the great message of this story, the, the hope that we have in Jesus. That's the, that's the map. Um, let's begin. Who is Jesus? Three miracles which reveal his identity. Geography is important. I know some of you are probably geography students, don't need to tell you that. Other people don't realise that geography is important. Can you believe uh, that that's true? Geography is important. It's important to Mark all the way through as you look through his gospel. He's always telling you where Jesus is. And in this section, he begins like that. He tells us where he is in verse 31. Jesus is still ministering in Gentile territory. Now, you might remember from last week, if you can cast uh, your mind back to last week, Jesus encountered a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile woman, um, earlier on in chapter 7. And he revealed to her that he had come not merely to redeem the children of Israel, the Jews, but also the Gentiles too. And here, as he travels from Tyre, the Gentile region, through Sidon to the Decapolis region on the shores of Galilee. He's still working in those Gentile areas and he begins to do for the Gentiles what he's been doing for the Jews. A man's brought to him by the crowd, verse 32, and the man has a disability. He's deaf and he's mute. So that word speech impediment there uh, in this translation, it simply means that, that he can make sounds but he can't form them into words. And that indicates that he's probably been like this since birth. Jesus draws him away from the crowd, and amazingly, he heals him. But it's a bit strange, isn't it? It's a lot more elaborate than the previous healings that we've seen in uh, Mark's Gospel. 
And actually, when you first read it, you may have thought, that's a little bit disgusting as well. He puts his fingers in his ears, and he spits probably onto his hand and touches the man's tongue. Nice. And then we read verse 34. That looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epphathah, it's an Aramaic word which means be opened. Incredibly, his ears are opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. It's amazing. And these details here, they sound very much like they come from someone who was really there, an eyewitness, don't they? Maybe a disciple, maybe even the man himself. Whoever Mark got this from was, was really there to have seen all this stuff. Why does Jesus do it in this way? Well, we're not told. We don't know. He does it in different ways at different times, these healings. We're not told here why he does it this way. But what's clear is that the power for the healings is not in the method, it's in the man. Jesus heals him by his own power at his own word. Now come with me to the second healing. That's over the page in verse 22 to 26. I wonder, as it was read, if you picked up that there are some similarities between these two healings. Several. Both men have disabilities. They have their senses impaired. In the first one, it's hearing and speech. Here, it's sight. Both men are brought by a crowd to Jesus. And in both, the crowds beg Jesus to touch the man. But both are then taken by Jesus to a private place out of public view. You see that here in verse 23 uh, in the second one. And then in both of these accounts, the healing comes through the touching of the affected part um, of the person. And bizarrely, spitting. I don't know why he spits. If you want to ask me about that afterwards, we can talk about it, but I have no idea really why he does that, other than the fact that it happens in both of them, and so Mark wants us to see the similarities. Have a look at verse 23. He had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him. Verse 25, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now you'll notice that there's a second, there's a, there is a difference in these two healings. A big one, one major difference, is that the second one is a two-parter. Now we're going to come back to later on why that's a two-parter, why that is the case. There's one more similarity between these two healings that we should notice. It's that they're each followed by a declaration. They're each followed by a declaration which reveals the identity of Jesus. See, back in verse 37, the crowd made an astounding, astounded uh, statement. And in the statement that they made, they revealed that Jesus is the one promised in the Old Testament, specifically that he's the one promised in Isaiah chapter 35. Now, Isaiah 35 was part of a great prophecy written 700 years before uh, Jesus came. And the prophecy said that God himself would one day come to rescue his people and bring them back to himself. 
But it elaborated on that, and it said that when he came to rescue his people, there would be signs of his coming. And that among those signs, these in particular would happen. Let me read Isaiah 35, verse 4. Isaiah says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So that declaration that the crowd made in verse 37, he has done all things well, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, is revealing his identity as the Messiah who was promised. If we were in any doubt as to whether that was the case, the second declaration in this passage is even clearer. It comes from Peter. It's even more explicit following this second healing. In verse 29, Jesus is speaking with his disciples, talking about the events of the things that he's been doing, what's been going on, what people are saying about him. And Peter proclaims this in as straightforward a sentence as possible. Verse 29, Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is God's chosen king. That's what they profess as his identity when they see what he has done. He's come to rescue and to rule his people. Now we've seen that truth several times throughout Mark's gospel as we've uh, gone through. But what's new here in Mark chapter 7 and Mark chapter 8? What's what's the new thing about his messiahship that we're seeing? Well, the thing that's specific to this passage is that it's revealed to us that Jesus is not just the messiah for the Jews. He's the Messiah for the Gentiles too. In other words, he's the Messiah for the whole world. And that's confirmed to us by the miracle in the middle, the bread. Flip back over the page to the beginning of chapter 8. What's happening here? Well, it definitely rings loads of bells for us, doesn't it? Just two chapters before, in fact, you can see it just over the page. Jesus fed 5,000 people. The difference is that he did that in Jewish territory. And there he revealed himself to be their Redeemer, King, their Messiah. Then last week we saw him have a conversation with a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician woman, where he said that after the children were fed with bread, he'd give what was left to the dogs, a euphemism for Gentiles. Now he does literally that. He gives them bread. He's doing for the Gentiles what he'd previously done for the Jews. In fact, in verse 3, he says this, that some have come from far away. And his compassion for them is the same as his compassion for the Jewish people. He feeds them, miraculously meeting their needs as well. So when we put all these three miracles together, and we say what's unique about this in Mark's gospel, we can say this that these three miracles show that Jesus is God's Messiah 
He's the Son of God, the Saviour, not just of the Jews, but the Saviour of the world. But here's the big shock. No one gets it. No one really gets it. You'd think that having done all of these amazing things, everyone would realise who Jesus is and they'd follow him. At this stage in the story, it sounds a little bit like people are starting to get it. They're saying some of the right things, like the crowd and like Peter here. But actually, as we go through the rest of the story, we'll realise that at best, it's only a partial understanding. Even for Peter, who makes this very clear and true statement, we'll see next week he gets a very clear rebuke because he hasn't understood. Incidentally, that's probably why Jesus keeps telling people not to say anything probably that they don't grasp the truth of his identity fully. And so if they were to go around telling people, they'd just get it wrong. They don't really grasp the truth of Jesus' identity. Even when he stood right in front of them, doing these incredible things. Why? Well, we'll see why in these two conversations in the middle these two conversations will expose themselves, these people, but it'll expose us too as we see the condition uh, of our own hearts. Second question, who is Jesus? We've answered, who are we? Verse 11 to 13 is a really strange episode, isn't it? Jesus goes from one side of the lake, where the Gentiles are, to the other side, back to the Jewish territory. He has a two-sentence argument with the Pharisees, and then he goes back to the other side of the lake again. It's a really brief visit. You can see, just separated out, just a tiny little bit of text there in the middle of the column. What, what's going on there? Why is Mark including this really short, brief incident in this passage? What does it show? It shows that no matter how many miraculous signs Jesus performs, some people will never believe in him because their minds are already made up. The Pharisees have already made their minds up, haven't they? They come to Jesus, but they don't come to be taught by him. They come to pick a fight with him. Verse 11, they're testing him. And just look at Jesus' reaction in verse 12. He sighed deeply in spirit, in his spirit, and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He sighed deeply. Actually, Jesus has displayed his emotion once before in this story, in verse 34. There he was sighing. Um, Sighing there, I think, with frustration that in the suffering of this world that he sees in this deaf and mute man. But here, this sigh is deeper. This sigh is kind of guttural. It's a, it's a, ah, sound. It's a deep anger, a groan at the hardness of heart in these people. They will not believe. And so further evidence is pointless. They had plenty of proof that Jesus was the Messiah already but they would not believe no matter what Jesus did. And so Jesus leaves them abruptly in judgment upon them. 
There'll be some today who still respond like that to Jesus, who have so set their hearts against him that they will refuse to bow before him. There'll be some people like that. Lots of people aren't like that. Lots of people are like the disciples. The disciples understand something about Jesus, but it hasn't all fit together for them, has it? They, they, can't, they can't seem to really get it. As yet, they haven't responded with faith in him, in his identity. In fact, we could go a little bit further than that. We could say that the disciples really are a bunch of idiots, aren't they? Don't you think? I mean, think of what's happened before now in this story. Jesus is healed. He's cast out demons. He's done all sorts of miracles. Just a couple of weeks back, he's fed 5,000 people with five loaves. They were there in that feeding. They were right there. And yet here they're so slow-witted. Look at verse 4. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? I mean, come on. It's exactly the same situation that you had a few weeks back. No one thinks, you know, oh yeah, Jesus provided bread from nowhere last time. Let's look at ourselves for a moment, though. We can't give them too much of a hard time. Isn't it true that we still doubt whether Jesus will provide for our needs when he's always provided so abundantly in the past? Isn't that true of us? Perhaps the disciples aren't the only idiots around. But Mark really wants to drive this home to us. Their lack of understanding is picked up again after this Pharisee incident in verse 14 and following. We're back in the boat. And Jesus makes a very interesting statement, a big warning in verse 15. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. What were the Pharisees uh, characterized by in Mark? By unbelief. What was Herod characterized by? By unrepentance. So Jesus' warning is that unbelief and unrepentance creep into all of our hearts and spread like yeast, imperceptibly but throughout. Hard-heartedness is a constant danger. And it seems that there's something of the Pharisees and Herod in all of us, which is always seeking to pull us into unbelief and unrepentance. Now that statement, I mean, I was thinking about this earlier in the week, it really deserves a whole sermon all on its own, um, but we haven't got time for that. You'll be grateful to know. Maybe we could come back to that another time. Mark wants to continue the conversation for us. Let's see, how, see where it goes. Verse 16. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Well, they don't get it at all. You can, and you can kind of hear Jesus' frustration in his reply. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about no bread? It's not about bread. The yeast is a metaphor. It's a picture. It's to describe a spiritual reality in the hearts of people. And now Jesus shows us that it's not actually just yeast that's a picture, not just bread that's a picture, that gave us the condition of the human heart. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? 
Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke five loaves for 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. said to them, do you still not understand? See, the Pharisees, they'd never believe. Their hearts were so hard towards Jesus. We, we kind of expect that by this point. What's even more shocking here is that those closest to Jesus, those who've seen his miracles, those who have heard his teaching, those who know all about him, they can't understand either. And here's the fallen, sinful condition of the human heart, of all human hearts. We can learn about Jesus, we can intellectually assent to what he says, just as the crowd do, just as Peter does. But we will still ultimately be utterly lost and confused, unable to respond in faith, because spiritually speaking, we can't hear, we can't see, we can't grasp, we can't believe. It's not so much that we will not believe, it's that we cannot. See, if these disciples don't get it, who lived with Jesus while he was on earth, who had his identity so clearly displayed before their eyes. If they don't get it, well, what hope do any of us have? One hope. Only one hope. That the Messiah has come and that he is the one who can unstop deaf ears and open blind eyes eyes what hope do we have only one hope that jesus can open hearts like ours that's the great message of hope in these stories these two astounding healings at either end they reveal this spiritual truth to us they're pictures for us of what happens when jesus breaks into someone's life by his holy spirit he breaks in and he opens our hearts so that we might respond to him in faith. But I think too it's worth noticing that he doesn't always do so in the same way for each person. He meets the person where they are at and he takes them from there. So earlier I introduced you to my two friends, Steve and Andrew. Both were closed to the gospel. For years they were closed to Christian things. Steve heard about Jesus and he responded pretty much instantly as he heard what Christ had done on the cross for him. For Andrew, it took longer. It took careful, steady study of God's word over a period of time. And I think that's what we can learn from the differences in these two healings. First healing is instant. The man had quite literally never heard anything about Jesus before. And Jesus says to him, be opened, and there's an instant response. And the second, strangely, takes part in stages. Let's look at that a little bit more closely again. Verse 23. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he'd spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, 
Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, I don't think that Jesus failed at the first attempt, as if he was just having a go and, oh, whoops, you know, it didn't work, messed it up, you know, let's have another go. We know that Jesus can heal perfectly every time. He's proved it again and again. In fact, he's shown us that it's actually quite easy for him to do that, such as his power. So he hasn't failed. He, he must be doing this on purpose. Why? To teach. It's a visual aid, if you like. For the disciples, he's teaching them that, like the man, they only see dimly. They see with blurred vision. They, they see some things about Jesus, but they don't see clearly. And in the next few chapters, he's going to go through a process of opening up their blind eyes, revealing to them his full identity, and particularly his full purpose uh, to go to the cross, to suffer and die for us. That's going to become clear to them over the next um, few um, conversations with Jesus. And actually, that's the role of this episode plays in the story, in the flow of Mark's story. But I think there's, there's too something here for us to be learned about how the Lord Jesus sometimes works in our lives as we come to faith in Jesus. Some people will go from not knowing about him to hearing about him and responding instantly. He'll say, be opened, and their hearts will open to him. And we praise God for when it happens like that. But I think for most, perhaps, it will be more like the blind man and, and the disciples. Like Andrew, my friend, the slow and steady unpacking of the person of Jesus through reading the Bible with someone. Slowly but surely, in stages, if you like, they will begin to see, dimly at first, with fuzzy vision, but then in the full clarity that the Spirit gives as they come to understand the identity of the Messiah and the cross on which he dies. And perhaps that's your story. Perhaps you're a Christian this morning and you look back and you see, yeah, this is exactly what Jesus did for me. He has opened my ears, he's opened my eyes, my heart. And I think the response for us this morning is to be grateful, to be thankful for what he has done for us. Perhaps you're engaged in a conversation with a neighbour or a colleague and, and you're trying to reach them with the good news about Jesus or maybe you've started to read the Bible with someone. Well, seeing what we've seen this morning, what should you do? Be prayerful. No amount of intellectual understanding will lead them to put their faith in Christ, although that's important. They need their eyes and ears opened by the Spirit of God. So pray. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you've not yet committed your life to Jesus Christ and you feel like the blind man. You feel like, I can see something is important about Jesus, but I can't quite see clearly. Lots of people feel like that and we're glad that you're here this morning if you feel like that. What do you need? You need to ask Jesus to open your eyes. 
He's the only one that can. But when you ask him to open your eyes that you may see him, he will answer that prayer. As we close, what have we seen? We've seen the Messiah, Jesus, full of compassion and grace. We've seen ourselves as deaf and blind, dull-witted, full of confusion. And we've seen his grace that takes people from where they are, in their deafness and their blindness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he opens their hearts to grasp his identity and receive his salvation. Don't we love this man? Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you that you sent your Son into this world as your Messiah, your King. We praise you that he came, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles too. Those of us who are Gentiles this morning are so grateful that Jesus is the Saviour of the world. But we thank you too that he came to open hearts that were hard towards you. And Lord, we know that that is necessary for us. We know that this dullness is still there in in us in many ways. So we're so thankful for your grace towards us. And we ask that for our friends and our colleagues and our families, family members who have yet to see the glory of Jesus Christ, we ask that you would open their eyes, open their ears, that they may proclaim that he is the Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.